0: Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. So, if you're a sports fan, certainly every four years, or actually every two years now, between winter and summer Olympics, you are terribly energized. And in the meantime, you have all your college athletics to keep you busy. Um, but you probably have often seen the intersection of college athletes becoming olympic athletes and you may have asked yourself the question how does that happen how are they able to do that well we fortunately have somebody who's going to help us answer that question here for you Uh, sarah Wilhelmy is is um the u.s olympic committee director of collegiate partnerships and we are delighted sarah that you're here with us thank you for joining us
1: oh it's a pleasure to be here Let's talk
0: about how all of that happens. There was a time, and you're probably too young to know this, there were a time when certain teams went to the Olympics because they were national champions. Um, You go back to rowing, for instance. Uh, The crew that won the national championship went to the Olympics. Um, There were times when we had, uh, when you looked at, at, at the basketball programs, they were all collegiate athletes playing in the Olympics. All that has changed now. And with change comes progress and sometimes comes problems, uh, impediments, let's call it, maybe even better. So let's talk about what you do then. What is When you talk about being the, the director of collegiate partnerships, what does that mean?
1: Ooh, such a good question. So, you know, this is a new initiative uh, that I would want everybody to be aware of. This position was created in 2016, so I was literally coming in as half the staff was leaving for, for Rio.
0: <laughs> I <Is that, laughs> said, so, wait, wait for me.
1: <laughs> that's exactly right. So as they're heading out the door, I'm trying to figure out how to use the copy machine. But, they, um, you know, it was a remarkable really to come in at a time when a Games was about to occur. It was a fantastic glimpse of, of the magnitude of the college contribution. And one of the first, literally my first day, I uh, got a call from the NCAA asking, Sarah, how many college athletes do you have? And I, mm-hmm. I go, I don't know. I'm, I'll have to find out. So what we realized we needed to do was some sophisticated Googling together because that's actually not a record we had kept before. Right. And what we found was nearly 80% of that team had worn a school's jersey uh, and really got the benefit of a college experience. That,
0: I think that number is interesting. It, it, it's surprising to me, and, and I'm somebody who is fairly familiar with the athletics world. As we mentioned before in your introduction, you know, there was a time when when basically all of our Olympic athletes were either college athletes or even high school athletes at the time when you could not participate if you were a professional in any way, shape, or form. That's changed. Changed dramatically. And my guess is the perception has changed so that if you ask somebody on the street, My guess is most of them would say to you, probably the vast majority of our Olympic athletes, they're pros. But it turns out they're not.
1: Well, let's uh, back up a little bit probably and define how we classified the college definition. And and what we looked at was really, what we felt was important is any time you had the chance, the opportunity to play. And with that comes a lot of responsibility on the institution. they are they're. They're providing the infrastructure, the chance to play, the coaches, the facility, whether you're rec, whether you're varsity, whatever level, there is a system behind that opportunity. And so from that, that's where our definition, it encompassed, quite frankly, a lot of folks are very proud to have come through the college ranks. And the fact that in their 20s, let's be honest, I'm not in there anymore, (laughs) but you know, that's a prime time in your life to chase your academics and your athletic ambitions. And in our country, you get to do both. Arguably, in a lot of countries, you're put in a state system with a state coach in a state facility. You don't have the latitude like you do in, a, in the United States. And to as a fan, I'll
0: say that's the beauty, that's the genius of our model.
1: Absolutely. And here's a fun fact. So, it actually, I was doing some homework when I took the job back in the early, early years when Pierre Cupertin launched the modern Olympics. He actually advocated, um, it went from, I'm going to probably get, get this wrong, but it was Athens, then I believe Paris, and then he was advocating for the United States to host the next one in St. Louis in 04. And in fact, one of the, one of the angles was he was curious about that college model that had all the athletes in it. And he was a strong advocate, even before the modern Olympic Games were, were created, was that having an educational system with athletics as a part of it was the best way to treat, tra- train and, and have your citizens become models for the world.
0: Well, if you think, if you go back to the Greek model, all right, the Greek model were they were, they were scholar-athletes, yep. truly scholar-athletes, when you talked about that, that you know, thousands of years ago. And the notion was the mind and the body were, were both inextricably intertwined, and you wanted to seek perfection for both of them. So uh, what you're saying makes sense. Uh, interesting how, how, however, as you said, for the rest, most of the rest of the world, although many of them now, I, I, I did a conversation with President Mark Emmert, and he talked about how Japan, especially, is looking at our model and trying to say maybe this would work for them too. Um, so in, in any event, we're, we it, it's it's changed now over the years. And let's talk about your function. I would suspect, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I would suspect now that although I would guess just about every athlete you know, who would ever have the opportunity to participate in the Olympics would jump at the chance. What a great, and I know you've, we've seen many of the professional athletes who said, look, I don't care how much I'm making, money I'm making. I want to I have the USA on my jersey and, and participate. And yet if you look at, at what's, some of what has been happening in the intercollegiate athletic world, We are, as a consequence of of finances and budget cutbacks, we are losing a lot of what is often referred to as the Olympic sports within the, the parameters of college participation. Talk about that a little bit and what sort of problem that's created for us.
1: Yeah, I you know in in my limited time at the USOC that was what the the big impetus I think for having a position created for the first time kind of coming back full circle here with my position but it was created with a lot of anxiety In that 2013 14 15 window there was lawsuits you know we've got uh, the the basically the NCAA governance structure changing and conference realignment and all of that turbulence made a lot of the folks that we call the national governing bodies, those are the the entities that oversee every sport in this country. So USA Track and Field, USA Swimming, etc. They really raised their hand and spoke with the USOC leadership, expressing this need: we have to be we have to be supporting the Olympic sports in this space given all this change and turbulence and a real fear that the entertainment pressures would would create more pressure that would then put the pressure on campuses trying to sustain their Olympic sports. And as a lot of us know, those Olympic sports are often part of the fabric and identity of those campuses. There is uh, obviously a rich educational opportunity there, but also there's there's a lot of pride in programs who have, whether to, you alluded to mm-hmm. earlier, those historic rowing programs or wrestling programs, etc. cetera. Uh, so we believe that this new role really is intended as we look at it, our purpose is to strengthen the collegiate contribution to Team USA. Now that's a way broad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's an ambitious goal,
1: right? Yeah, but
0: a, but a very worthwhile goal.
1: Right. and and I think what we're noticing is it's kind of a macro and a micro approach. So on the on the big picture, we need to unify, I think collectively, again, college athletics is a part of our identity as a country. It builds our citizens. It is, it is a value that we need to come together to celebrate and promote, but also on the sport-by-sport sport basis, different NGBs are, are, are what they say using the college pipeline in different ways. Uh, And that was one of the things that was kind of fun as we started to unpack the data from Rio. We saw organically Division II having Olympic caliber cyclists coming out of student-run programs. You know, we were... we it didn't have to
0: be a varsity sport. It
1: didn't have to be. And and again, you look across the country and every... It's okay that ice hockey is prevalent in the north and that beach volleyball is growing Mm -hmm. on the west coast and and in the Florida Gulf. You know, Mm -hmm. those pockets regionally make sense. And what we're looking at is on a sport-by-sport basis, how do we do more to take those resources and, and the time and energy that's kind of being duplicated by the NGB and those schools? It's
0: NGB. Yes, so
1: the National Governing Body. Right. How would we help basically both sides are trying to understand whose athletes are where, competing when, and achieving mm-hmm. what? And we're seeing our role as a department, can't we streamline that role between those two entities that are both kind of struggling to do that? So that's where we're starting at least.
0: Right. So you, you talked about the idea that that You don't have to – a sport doesn't have to be played at every school across the country. You mentioned ice hockey. There are certain areas um, where ice hockey is going to be prevalent. It makes sense. Um, You talk about beach volleyball. That makes sense also. But how then in this position that you're in now and and in terms of the the U.S. Olympic Committee, when we're looking at – going back to what we talked about a few moments ago – you know, sadly, one of the first cuts when schools are faced with, with cutbacks, and here you're talking about predominantly the public institutions, and they look to their athletics departments and say, you know, you're going to have to pair some things out here. What we're seeing disappearing are wrestling programs, uh, but we're seeing some track and field programs disappearing or at least being shrunk dramatically. So what kind of an impact do you think this is having on our ability to develop Olympic-caliber athletes?
1: I think if you look on a sport-by-sport basis, you do see different trends. And and I'll be honest, I think there was a real window of of settling into Title IX, in my own opinion, Mm -hmm. where – we really started to see it enforced in the nineties and you started to see more of the shifting of how does an athletic department look now that women are included. And I think there has been in a way if the numbers are starting to show a real settling. And and in that sense, it's you look at wrestling, they've actually added if you go if you look over a thirty year window, mm-hmm. it's drastic. Right. If you look in a ten year window, they're on the rise. And what's fascinating to me is we start to look again. Olympic sports aren't all the same, just like every NCAA school is not the same. Division one, two, and three are not the same. And when we look at the wrestling pockets, one of the cool things they've dabbled in is what they're calling regional training centers. Mm-hmm. And they've started to have Olympians that are training at these different campuses. And they've obviously have a great vested interest in the communities there. Uh, they're giving great training grounds for the next Olympian coming behind them. And we have seen what they would articulate, the leadership of USA Wrestling said, man, Sarah, we probably had, you know, five to seven strong programs probably seven years ago. They would say, now we're pushing 2025. He's just said, it's just really sparked an, an energy across the country mm-hmm. in the sport of wrestling. So as I look at our department, we want to look, we, we kind of call the um, the pipeline, and we're Thank goodness, there's not 50 different spigots, but there's probably about five or six of, of ways that NGBs can learn from each other who are in a similar sports sponsorship pocket mm. and how are they leveraging the energy in those pockets differently and more collectively.
0: So talk a little bit about, and, and this might be useful for folks who are listening here who are perhaps coaches or administrators at, at, uh, at collegiate institutions. Talk a little bit about your um, what you're doing as director of collegiate partnerships. What what is it that and I know you're sort of getting this up and running, but what is it that you're you're hoping to do to bring them and, and you all together here?
1: Yeah. So what I would say kind of out of the gates, I think we really had to get our house in order this first year. So I was, again, surprised to come in on day one and not know really the depth of our roster from a college perspective. So getting our arms around the numbers. Number two is leveraging all those communication channels. And and this is for kind of a couple of reasons. Once we know the information, you can make better decisions, but you can also help those schools activate because they are the ones in a lot of ways uh, and I'll give you an example of this, but we want those communication channels strong with the, those who are invested in the programs at the campus level. So, for example, we had a, a comment by our staff. Well, Sarah, why don't – if you want to recognize the colleges, just put an ad in the USA Today. And my response was, <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool. Mm-hmm. But what we want to do is not so much the masses, not the folks reading the paper at the barbershops or the beauty salons. Mm-hmm. We want to hit the audience, the leaders who are vested in those programs at the campus level – and we know that the presidents and the board of trustees and the athletic directors they are reporting and accountable to their communities and to their donors and to their alumni so how do we arm those campuses with the tools to celebrate the success that their institutions generating mm-hmm. so that's a bit of a paradigm shift for us i think at the usoc we've had a very national approach and this is an example where we're trying to take it back to the stakeholders and to their vested interests yeah.
0: One of the things that you've been able to do is put together a a collegiate advisory council. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. Could not be more honored, honestly, to work with this audience. So many, many thanks to Kevin White uh, Mm -hmm. at Duke and Bob Bowlesby at the Big 12. They have both served, and Kevin White still does, on our board of directors for the United States Olympic Committee. And their vantage point has been so enormously helpful of seeing the college world and the Olympic world at the same time. And, and with them and their guidance, we've been able to kind of strategize. We really need to get, the, quite frankly, a lot of the high-performing institutions, having them come to the table and help guide our direction a little bit. And coming back to the numbers, uh, looking at that 80% of our team in Rio – Almost 72% of that team came from schools in the Autonomous Five conferences. So if you look at our roster, you will notice that kind of – that audience is really reflecting the athletes who came to join us in Rio. And I tell you what, it's such a rock star group, and they have such a – passion and conviction for this Olympic model of education. And they're really giving us – we just met this past December at NBC and and set out our mission and three priorities that we're kind of anchoring into this notion of, again, getting tools to school, celebrating those athletes, working on a national campaign to promote this relationship. And then what I'm probably most excited about is this – what we're calling our Pathway Project – and Tell me about that. Yeah, so the path, it's the, this pathway to the podium, which again is so unique <laughs> in our country. And, and it's that's a great
0: term, by the way. It's fun, right? You could use that for anything, <laughs> but it certainly works for the Olympics.
1: For sure. The pathway
0: to the podium.
1: You know, and as you mentioned, impediments, you know, this on a sport by sport basis and collectively, that's the, the path isn't necessarily as smooth as it could be. Mm-hmm. And I, my roots kind of come from the NCAA compliance world. I got my start in this building, learning, learning those ropes. And uh, so a lot
0: of, a lot of ropes to learn. By so the way.
1: many ropes to learn, and, <laughs> and, and, and from that perspective, I, I, you know, and I worked at Stanford for a stint where you were managing nine hundred athletes. So I sympathize for those compliance people that are trying to keep all these rules straight and uniform and, you know, cookie cutter. But what I'm realizing is. On the Olympic side, again, when you talk about that pathway, that athlete is trying to stretch themselves to be all things to all people. They're trying to honor the academic calendar, the conference calendar, that international calendar. And, and we're starting to question, could we be doing more to help streamline that path? You know, by example, I never realized that the athletes that are training are training over a four-year strategy and they may very well be intentionally resting those bodies that year after a Games. And very, very well, two years out, in many sports, are the qualifiers. So you're not even guaranteed a team that has a seat at the Games. You have to earn that seat. And we need athletes to help us earn those seats as well. You know, So could we do more to look at an athlete's career, You know, their academic, athletic, and their professional ambitions, and, and look at it holistically? How do we help them? meet their goals, which would include probably that podium path. Sure. So.
0: And, and as you said, the, the, the calendar, if you would, of an athlete in terms of their performance and their training and their rehabbing and their resting, it's different from what it was a few decades ago, When oh, people man. just think, yeah, just keep, you keep playing. You know, just get, get, go from college, go to the Olympics, go to the pros, just keep playing. Um, what has been—last uh, question for you here— um, as you've gotten involved in this now and kind of getting your arms around this and working through this, this great advisory council you mentioned, um, are, you, are you optimistic that, that you can put things in place that will continue to provide these op- optimum opportunities, despite some of the hurdles that are there, to, to help better create that pathway to the podium? 100%.
1: I'm amazed. At, I mean, again, we, we we rocked the world in 2016. We're doing pretty great. We did pretty well. We did pretty well, right? So, So in my mind, to keep this going, gosh, imagine what we can do if we actually work together. You know, and we have way more in common than in conflict. We both organizations are so athlete-centered. And what we hope to do is just get the mechanics in place. And and honestly, we're kind of looking on a trajectory that is right now, get the house in order, get us ready for 2020. And then after that, we want to run. Uh Uh, We are going to absolutely have schools celebrating their contribution every year, not just every four. Uh
0: Well, it, it, it sounds marvelous, and, and we wish you every success, Sarah. Thanks for spending some time with us. And, and again, maybe we'll, we'll get you back here and talk a little bit more as this continues on the pathway to the podium. Thanks for spending time with us.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That does it for this edition of the College Sports Insider. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jack Ford. We'll look forward to talking with you again real soon.